So, Sam, here is the burning question that I would like us to dig into here. One that I feel that we as morons um, are perhaps the best qualified to answer. Who had the worst 2018? The Orioles or President Trump? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> the idea that we would even be in the same arena of bad years as him is... Well, it says a lot. <laughs> it says a lot. So I have three categories for you that I think delineate uh, how each um, entity's 2018 went. Entity. Um, and each individual <laughs> one and team one. Yes. Uh, so as as new Orioles manager Braden Hyde might say, uh, or I imagine he says it like 50 times a day, let's dig into the numbers. <laughs> First off, <laughs> to which everybody else in the organization is like, what are those? <laughs> Core competencies. So, your 2018 Baltimore Orioles racked up a stunning 115 losses. That is the I old am still stunned by that. .29 winning percentage, which is historically bad. Uh, I believe third worst um, record in the 162-game season. Mazel tov, gentlemen. <laughs> Your 2018 White House presided over three government shutdowns in 2018. They closed, they shuttered the government three times, uh, despite the fact that they theoretically lead the government, <laughs> uh, which is also unprecedentedly bad. So I put to you, uh, 115 losses or three times when you stopped doing your job in the midst of doing your job. What do you think was worse? <laughs> um, well, in my mind, the the only ray of light way of thinking about this is um, if you're, if you're going to have a bad year, yes. what does it get you in the long term? Mm. And I think we'll talk about this more later in the show, but I am very excited about the future of the Elias Hyde regime Mm -hmm. um i think it's i think it's really really cool the way they're approaching things and i don't think that we would be going through this long overdue tear down and re-envisioning if it were not for the aforementioned heinously hideous year that we had yeah um whereas in the case of individual one um most of those government shutdowns i believe were designed to try to establish bargaining leverage over Congress. Yeah. And all three of those were abject failures, and his political capital is at an all-time low. That's true. So, That's true. However, though, you, you can say about a Trump government shutdown, he is proving his overall thesis that government doesn't work every time he <laughs> successfully closes government. Mm-hmm. So in some weird way, he is actually sort of, um, I mean, it, I, I in, in the internal logic of the far right in this moment, um, government not functioning at all is actually proof positive that they're onto the right track. So you could make an mm-hmm. argument that is specifically in the question of closing governments, um, you know, we'll get into some of his other low points in just a second. But oh, good. <laughs> just just in terms of the of the shuttering of the government, um, I actually think that that's maybe less damaging to a Trump presidency than losses 
112, 113, 114, 115 were for the mm. Orioles because mm. that really kind of put them in All historically time bad territory. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, hmm. Yeah, I guess and it, it's interesting to think on the flip side about the long-term prognosis for the organization, the Orioles, mm-hmm. uh, team one. Um, the long-term prognosis for teams that pivot hard into a true analytic, a true, like, cold, heartless, emotion-free, analytics-driven approach. The track record of the teams that engage in that full teardown and rebuild is very strong. Hmm. Uh, that's like what the Brewers did. That's, that's what the, the Astros. Astros. Um, and obviously, like our DNA is basically Astro colored now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Full import. Okay, let's get into the personnel question because in 2018, your Baltimore Orioles lost Manny Machado, Zach Britton, Brad Brock, Jonathan Scope, Donuts, and I can't believe I'm writing this. Attempted to trade Adam Jones, the literal mayor of, well, the figurative mayor of Baltimore. <laughs> they also lost Buck Showalter, his entire pit, his entire coaching staff, and Dan Duquette has another in a long list of regrets to add to his name. <laughs> However, your 2018 White House lost <laughs> Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, National Security Advisor H. Ring Masters, serial liar Hope Hicks, EPA head Scott Pruitt. John Dowd, Mr. Trump's lead lawyer for the, I can't believe I'm writing this, ongoing special counsel investigation into a sitting president. They also lost Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Ryan Zinke, the Interior Secretary, and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. John F. Kelly, the Chief of Staff, will leave the administration in the next couple of weeks, but technically that didn't happen in 2018, even though it was announced then. So, what do you think? Who lost more crucial personnel? and Or do we sort of spin this in the way you were spinning it, which is to say the Orioles lost all those people, but they got back an exciting new administration with a vision and 15 prospects for all of that fire sailing. So advantage Orioles, disadvantage White House. Well, my, my initial response, which was designed basically to be flippant and silly, was none of the people who left the White House were at all vital. They were all idiots. <laughs> So like then then but but the truth is some of those people though I disagree with them vociferously on a policy level are actually terrifyingly smart mm-hmm. Rex Tillerson among them um and one of the deepest brain breaking moments of the Trump presidency for me was when he was deliberating whether to pull out of the Paris climate accord and his EPA head was advocating for him to pull out, and his secretary of state, who used to be the CEO of Exxon, (laughs) was advocating for him to stay in. That is so hard. I just had to think so carefully about that sentence I just said, because it's so confusing. It's so confusing. Um, I just just gesticulated so forcefully (laughs) that I knocked something. It's so hard to understand that. Right. Um, Right. So... And and I do continue to nurse a fear that the only reason we are still alive and breathing oxygen that isn't irradiated <laughs> is because there are some brave souls, brave, vaguely intelligent people in that White House who are at least keeping Trump from doing the worst things that he wants to do. That said, um, I do think the country is worse off for all of those people leaving. Yeah. The org- if the organization is America. Pruitt can 
Pruitt can go kick rocks. Yeah, don't um, throw Hitcher the way out. Which is all that will remain after um, <laughs> his policies take uh, their full effect. Um, but uh, I think, you know, we lost a lot of great people in the great reboot uh, in Baltimore. Yeah. But the people that came in are probably in some cases better baseball minds. I'll just say better baseball minds for the way the game is Moving played in 2019 today yeah. and and we're probably a few years late in doing that so um i think i think trump loses this round too yep okay uh final category the lowest moment the nadir oh boy i have picked and i think this is a contentious pick because mm-hmm. there are lots of low moments i have picked the fact that in 2018 chris davis hit 168 uh <laughs> that is the worst batting average of all time. <laughs> I think uh for anyone who gets over some, you know, some yeah. basic number of at bats. Wasn't he also below Dan Ugla, who <laughs> we all thought with his one seventy two a few years ago had set the the lowest possible line. Um and there are still four years left on Chris Davis's contract. At a cool $21,118,782 per year. You now, know, let, me give you, let me give you the comparison. <laughs> the lowest spot for the White House. Huh. So, really, you were able to pick one? <laughs> Trump roundly failed to advance any political solution to the immigration situation, his signature campaign promise, while enacting a zero-tolerance policy and border plan that forced separation of migrant families, called most of the world shithole countries, paid $130,000 out of his own pocket to Stormy Daniels, a pornographic film actress who claimed to have an affair with him, stood next to Vladimir Putin of Russia and publicly challenged the conclusions of his own intelligence agency that Moscow interfered with the 2016 presidential election, had no fewer than 37 people indicted in an ongoing investigation into that same election, including six of whom who worked on his campaign and reported to him and feuded with anyone and anything that crossed his path. So no, I didn't didn't really choose a single one. (laughs) And actually, I sort of feel bad comparing that list to Chris Davis. <laughs> Even that list that you just rattled off in extraordinary detail, that I would characterize as a smattering. <laughs> a smattering Smith. Yeah, yeah, of the potential low parts. Yes. But is it as bad as 168? <laughs> I mean, 168 is pretty bad. <laughs> so here's the question. It's a the, low bar. Here's the way I, I would propose thinking about this. Um, if we pick, let's just pick one of the, I, I do think I'm going to take a bold stance here. <laughs> I think the collection of low moments, even just from that smattering is probably worse than Chris Davis betting 168 Yeah, and having what I true. believe is the all time least valuable season by any player ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the question is. We're under contract with Trump for two more years. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And well, I would just just hesitate to put a dollar value on that contract. <laughs> I just can't imagine what what that's worth. How much do we pay the president? <laughs> Isn't it? I think it's like four hundred and fifty thousand. But he, well, it's bargains compared to Chris Davis. 
Chris Davis. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. At two years, let's call it two years, 900K. $400,000 a year plus an extra expense allowance of $50,000. Okay. Nicely done, Sam. So two years, um, 900K. Yeah. Versus um, three, what was it? Four, Four years, years 80 million? 21 million left <laughs> per year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So four years, 84 80, million? $84 million. Um, shockingly. <laughs> well, but here's the other thing. You and I and everyone listening are paying a little piece of that Trump bill. That's true. Um, whereas it's just Mr. Angelo's foot in the bill for <laughs> Chris well, Davis. But also there's a, there's a very real way in which we're the, paying a hefty emotional tax. Yeah, <laughs> the, the worst, the worst thing about the Chris Davis experience is just sort of like the sad, confused walk back to the dugout after swinging at three straight pitches that were just above his his ankles. I will uh, say, I lived through the Sidney Ponzone era. <laughs> um, I lived through the Jeff Rebelay era. Uh, Chris Davis, it, it's it, the fir- he's the first. We all lived through the. Um, who was that monster person with the rec specs who we let close games for an embarrassingly long time? <laughs> Greg. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah, Ubaldo. Name, right? Kevin uh, yeah, Greg? Kevin Gregg, yeah. Ubaldo uh, Jimenez. Sure. Like, we have seen some, some dark, dark, yeah. low talent points on this team. Chris Davis is the first one where it, it actually makes me sad it's, it, to watch him bat like i yeah. can't actually look yeah because the outcome is so inevitable so inevitable and so like um so predetermined that you don't believe him when he looks like frustrated or confused because it's like yeah it's like you knew this was happening man don't don't even pretend as if like that wasn't a good strike call, and that's why you got out. <laughs> right. The problem and is you're literally unable to see the baseball. You, yeah. And my favorite moment of sports broadcasting maybe ever was the moment this year when Jim Palmer straight up called him out. Mm. And they they played on Orioles State Television. <laughs> <laughs> they, they showed a replay to prove Jim Palmer's point. That Chris Davis wasn't even looking at the pitcher when a breaking ball came in because he'd already resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't going to hit the ball. And then Jim Palmer went on to talk about how, you know, supposedly Chris Davis had said he did all this extra hitting work in spring training. And the uh, and Jim Presley, who was the hitting coach at the time, said, we didn't do that. I don't know what he's talking about. I appreciated that so much because it's so rare, particularly on your local sports broadcast in any city, that there would be a fair and much needed criticism of a player. Um, it's just impossible to look at, especially it's just impossible to look at him and, and to know how sad it's going to be. And particularly when as recently as 2013, he was the most fun offensive player to watch in baseball. Yeah. Don't change the channel. Chris Davis is coming up. Yes. Like, must see must see baseball tv yeah yeah it's also interesting to compare uh that sense in terms of people um with a direct sort of rooting interest in the orioles publicly stating um the ways in which they've gone wrong 
and then compare that to, well, I don't know, Mitch McConnell, say, <laughs> and his wild <laughs> lack of willingness just to pick somebody to, out of in head. any way uh, rein in the worst offenses of this presidency, and in fact continue. Uh, at least publicly, every single step of the way to stay in lockstep with something that is clearly a disaster. Right. Jim Palmer won. Mitch McConnell, negative 775. <laughs> <laughs> and the sad part of that is I'm pretty sure Jim Palmer is a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of all are at some, at, some, at some earning, like, cohort, right? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I just remember watching a game at some point a while back and... Jim Palmer was talking about being on either Charles or David Koch's boat. Oh, great. <laughs> and then said something about, like, you know, a lot of people don't like him. And that's all he said. And it's like, <laughs> yes, because liking him is tantamount to, like, I was about to say something extraordinarily vulgar. <laughs> well, uh, take heart, Baltimoreans. Uh, even suffering through 115 losses, if you really dig into the numbers, um, if you really look uh, in, in, a, in a sort of true Moneyball kind of a way at our season, it wasn't quite as bad as the 2018 that President Trump went through. Yeah, and, and to, to end this segment on a positive note, <laughs> I think... <clears throat> To end this segment on a positive note, I think it is very reasonable to believe that in the case of both the future of the Orioles and the future of our great nation, the people with their hands on the tiller are going to have a much more progressive, results-oriented approach than the chaos theory that has reigned for the last few years. Um, I'm personally very excited by the array of progressive ideas that are already a part of the Democratic primary. And I think it, it's going to take a long time for the new analytics-driven approach in Baltimore to take effect, but it's going to be fun to watch, and it's going to be weird. It will be fun. It will be fun. Um, I think it's interesting, in hindsight, that the moment of... Buck Showalter's peak buckness, um, which was not, in my mind, trusting his gut and not bringing in Zach Britton to pitch in the extra innings against Toronto yep. uh, to save Britton during his just, like, best pitcher and best closer in baseball um, stint there is actually the beginning of the end. And the Orioles yeah. never recovered from that loss. The, the, the Buck Showalter, Dan Duquette Orioles never recovered from that loss. And while the next season was not the season that killed us, it set up the fractures that would then um, flatten <laughs> yeah. the entire empire. And it, that was, I think, a very old manager decision. Yeah. That was the day the music died. Yeah, that was a, that was a gut instinct um, which, you know, as as we have discussed many times on this very podcast, um, back when we did this podcast, um, <laughs> I, I, I have always been pro that. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, ride the emotion kind of a guy. But it is interesting that that decision does seem to have been the thing that, like, started the collapse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting to think about, uh, perhaps by way of segueing into our next section here, mm-hmm. Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how do you feel? I've already sort of tipped my hand about my feelings about the uh, Elias regime. Where do you where do you come down on this? We've talked about this off mic, but well, I will say. Um... I have been on record a couple of times saying, give me some of whatever is in the Astros Wheaties. <laughs> I would like that, please. Uh, so it is exciting to sort of, you know, grab the DNA of an organization and see how much you can wring from that. Um, however, there are a lot of reasons to believe that coaching trees don't necessarily, like, the 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 other acorns don't necessarily produce the same tree. Um, oh, that's you know, interesting. Bill Belichick's um, offensive and defensive coordinators for the Patriots have gone to other places and not necessarily been as successful in implementing the Belichick program. Um, you, there, there are, I think, a lot of examples of aide-de-camps who people believe have that special sauce not necessarily being able to bring it with them. Other examples, you know, you can you can find examples where they where in fact it does work, and I think that mathematics is probably a place that is fairly um, transportable. <laughs> so I think I am pretty excited about that. I think it's I think it's going to be fun to watch. Um, I really invested in a lot of these Orioles players, so especially because some of them really did come up all the way through our system. I mean. Bundy's still on the team, but Gossman, Machado, Scope, like, these were dudes who I remember being excited about, like, a while ago, (laughs) and then watching them come up through the system and continuing to check in on them, and, like, I, I don't know whether they would have been the choices that we would have made with it, with it, with a good analytics system behind us, but... I liked them. <laughs> so it's going to take me a while to move from um, uh, excitement about the theory to caring about the dudes. But maybe also, like, one of the things that you learn from a good Moneyball system is that we shouldn't care so much about the individual dudes. And that actually they're sort of um, interchangeable robotic parts. <laughs> well, that's what I was I, I was just going to say. One of the last times we did this podcast that I still can't remember the title of, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we talked about how it's actually kind of strange when you think about it to be a fan of a team. Right. Because it's like being a fan of a corporation. Right. You know? Um, And in many ways acting exactly like a corporation. Right, right. And it's... I think a part of the reason um, that that has always been kind of surreal in the case of the Orioles is because there was no, you know, if you, let's say you're a fan of Apple. Sure. You're, you know, that means you like cool, shiny gear. And I'm saying this as an Apple fan, by the way, I'm not, (laughs) this is not the dump on Apple hour, but um, you are one of the reasons that people are fans of Apple say what you want about the fact that it's a giant corporation with terrible labor practices. Um, 
you are you it's do a have giant corporation with terrible labor practices <laughs> um you are investing in a vision yeah apple stands for something that is you you have a tangible experience of in your day-to-day life um when you are a fan of uh, what's what's another good example here? If you if you really love Tesla mm. or Harley Davidson or Harley Davidson, there's there's a real some of it is branding trickery, right? And some of it is is the kind of emotional manipulation that um, capitalism enables. But there is also it makes sense that these companies have a vision that you would get on board with. If you are a Yankees fan, that tracks, right? In recent years, if you are a Dodgers fan, that tracks. Uh In recent years, if you were an Astros fan, that tracks. These teams have a clear, definable, articulatable approach to baseball team production uh, and output that you're either into or you're not into, but you know what you're getting. Right. Whereas, to use the phrase I was using earlier, with the Orioles, I think it was chaos theory, you know? Yeah. I think it was like, let's just put people with, in some cases, a generally good track record in positions of influence, and then let's hope that these other people, who we have no real reason to believe will catch fire, will improbably catch fire, and you get your, over the years... Steve Pierce may be the most obvious example, but let's talk about Ty Wigginton. Sorry, World Series MVP. Pardon. Steve Pierce. Hopeful Elizabeth Warren running mate, (laughs) Steve Pierce. Um, But, like, Ty Wigginton, Aubrey Huff, Melvin Mora. I mean, like, let's remember some of the greatest hits here, Smith. Sure. Um, Who's the other person? Uh, Come at me. Jimmy Parides, (laughs) right? Like... Parades, parades. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not a vision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's throwing darts at a wall. That's throwing darts at a wall. And, you know, we don't know yet what the outcome of the Elias regime is going to be, but it, it, the guy clearly has a vision and is uncompromising in his dedication to doing this the right way, even if it means moving at a glacial pace, even if it means being fairly secretive uh, about what he's up to, including, as was the case with Brandon Hyde, when every other media organization is like, you are hiring Brandon Hyde. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And then three weeks or three days later, he was like, we've decided to hire Brandon Hyde. And everybody was like, yeah, Mike, we know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, but so 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 the question then is, um, that may be op- open season on this question, but that may be the best way to win baseball games longitudinally. Um, we don't. We now know from the Astros that you can do that and play winning baseball. It's not just it's not just the A's, right? Like it's it, right. that that shit does occasionally work in the playoffs. Right. Um, but, and I, I, I don't know if this is true of the way that the Astros have handled people, but I do know this is true of the way the A's have handled people. People who I know who are A's fans, um, I only know 
really one of them. Well, there are only six. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, I know, I know, I know. Uh, I guess like twenty percent of the A's fans, but um, they talk about the fact that it's no fun to follow a team who is constantly churning through new rosters because the reason that you follow a baseball team is for the narratives. And the reason you follow a baseball team is to get to know these people, not from 10 games or, you know, 50 games, but for 400 games and the arc of multiple seasons and watching people change and grow. Um, and, like, I guess, you know, the, the thing that I liked about watching the Orioles has been watching sort of the Machado scope double play and the fact they clearly liked each other watching sort of adam jones take new outfielders under his wing and teach them how to play in camden like watching people who i cared about um develop as players and people and i think that that is true of my other sporting like interests and teams as well um one of the reasons why I really have enjoyed this current run of Tottenham teams is that they're all the same people and they all came up through the Tottenham system. We don't it's not like, you know, they go out and buy and they're not Barcelona, they're not Manchester United, they don't go buy the best players. They develop players and they develop over time and they develop stories with them. And so I just don't know whether the sort of moneyballness of this comes in at who do we draft and who do we develop, in which case I'm totally in. That's great. I get to watch these new people come up and they're going to be surprises and they're going to be fun. Or is it like eight new people per season in the infield? But I would argue I would argue that we just have to think about the narrative differently. I think the narrative is this team went through a 14-year period of irrelevance. Yes. Then in 2012 coinciding with the launch of this podcast you're welcome (laughs) um it all of a sudden regained relevance in spectacular fashion had a series of seasons where it was surprisingly and dynamically and improbably competitive um and then we stopped broadcasting and then (laughs) yeah actually uh what we're doing right now bodes about as well for the future of or- the organization <laughs> as anything Michael Elias has done so far, based on recent history. Um, uh, then, like, crashed and burned. Yeah. Like, the chickens came home to roost and burned down the coop. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now, out of the ashes, the team is literally being remade at a cellular level. The old arson chicken problem. <laughs> You know the thing about a chicken arsonist? You never expect it. That's true. You never expect a chicken to be an arsonist. It's true. Um, it's always a surprise. <laughs> I'd look first at Brian Brock. <laughs> it's probably the last one of those jokes. Well, he just signed with the Cubs. Oh. Mazel tov, Brad. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. That means he's going to be a Cy Young candidate this year. <laughs> yeah. Yep, but he'll probably get politically indoctrinated by uh, Arietta. So, no, well, you know, um, the real question is: Will his wife continue to sing tuneful country songs? Yes, that's probably true. <laughs> um, so, 
the 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 grander narrative of the of the organization is is to me very interesting because so that there was this total crash and burn arsonist chickens and now it's being remade so at such a small level i i actually think it's impressive like they yeah. they have so seriously invested in the idea that the old way was broken right and needs to be rebuilt um from zero that that is going to be fascinating to watch and the the thing about the players is we just don't have our carlos correa yet we don't sure. have our alex bregman yet but we're going to get that guy um it just might it might take a couple of years yeah and i think the thing that's cool about being a fan of a team for as long as you and i and everybody listening have is you have an appreciation for that history that allows you to not need right away at least there to be somebody who is so dynamic and captivating and weird uh, as an individual that it distracts you from the other things that are taking a long time. Well, but that's, a, that's an interesting question because um, I feel fairly confident that I will wait, but the Orioles have already had problems in this season of disaster filling Camden Yards. Um, they, they, they have been, I mean, as, as um, you know, it's been well documented by some of our Sister Wife podcasts um, that... Can we still call them Sister Wife Podcasts? I think we should. Estranged Sister Wife Podcasts? <laughs> uh, that um, the Orioles are finally kind of catching up with different ways of making sure that there are butts in seats. But right. they have not necessarily done a good job with that either. So how – I mean, yes, you can rebuild slowly over a long period of time. Does that eventually mean – like when, when are you worried about becoming the Rays – who are irrelevant? Can I offer a hot, in Tampa? <laughs> can, can I offer a hot take on that though? Mm. It's actually Orioles are stronger than that. The brand, the Orioles brand, is stronger than that in Baltimore. Oh well, I think so. Okay, I think so. That's one thought. <laughs> My hot take was going to be: it's actually absurd to expect fifty thousand people to show up in the same place eighty-two nights a year. <laughs> like that's that's a yeah. very Especially with TV being what it is. Yeah. And that, that, that I, I just think that business model, because I guess that's what it is, is kind of a thing of the past. There's too many other distractions now, and it's too much fun to be at home. True. And I'm not saying I don't love going to the ballpark. I love going to the ballpark. But it's hard for me to, I guess, feel like it's incumbent upon the team to somehow make an evening at Camden Yards more captivating, especially when the same fans are probably watching the game on TV at home. Like, I actually would love to see a, a baseball future where, I mean, this would take many, many years, but I kind of like the idea that a stadium is just like 10,000 seats, yeah. you know? And they do that with some, especially some of the like 2,500, uh, tw- sorry, 25,000 intimate soccer stadiums they're building. Yeah. It's sort of a nice way to... I actually don't do think it. there's anything wrong with that. Um, well, I will say that one of the top two sporting moments of my life is when Alex Rodriguez struck out in that game in Camden w- that we went to in the playoffs mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. year the Orioles were back in the playoffs uh, and struck out in the top of the ninth inning. And I've never been anywhere as loud as 
fifty thousand Camden full is yeah. still fucking awesome. <laughs> it is. It is. But I I just think it, it, yeah, and the difference between fifty thousand people screaming like that and ten thousand people screaming like that is that's a big difference. At the same time, on a on a game to game nightly basis i mean there's a reason baseball like hardcore baseball fans like us you know tend to love going to a minor league game sure or something like that because you're at the game because you want to feel like it's an incredibly intimate away intimate way of engaging with the team so and i don't know I, i just think that i think a savvy team i think a really smart baseball team in 2019 if they decide they need a new stadium i think they build a smaller stadium where every single seat is awesome. Yeah. Um, and there's like a huge picnic area in center field. I think that's true. And you don't sell yourself this idea that you're somehow going to get 50,000 people to show up in the same place every night. I also think that you're going to start seeing somebody in baseball. I think it's probably going to be baseball first, but somebody in the sports world is going to start figuring out this idea of disruption that many tech companies have started to do in which you give away what used to be your core product for free and then you make your money on all of the other peripherals around it so in the same way that like for many years um like i mean in in some ways baseball stadiums are already doing this but if you drop the ticket price to literally zero so if you walk up you can get in then the product, the game on the field is being given away for free, but you can financialize so many different parts of the process of being in the stadium that it actually doesn't matter, and you can still make almost as much money as you were anyway. I will say, if a ticket to Yankee Stadium was free, I would feel much better about a Corona costing $18. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, and so they sort of get you coming and going in this current model, but... Yeah, and I think it's also important to point out, like, look, we're recording this in New York, um, we go to Yankees games all the time. It's not hard to get a ticket to a Yankees. People have this sure. idea like New York, that's like a big market city. It's not hard to get a ticket to a Yankee game. When you go to Yankee Stadium, there's probably 20,000 people there, but the stadium is half empty unless the Red Sox are in town or yeah. unless it's the heat of the pennant race. I think that's the case most nights in most cities. Sure. Um, and I think this conversation that we're having is... Uh, it's the first time I've had this conversation. Maybe it's been written about elsewhere. Um, I'm not trying to toot our own horn here, but I do think it's really interesting to think about what the future of in-person baseball fandom looks like yeah. and how it could be better for everybody in uh-huh. that ecosystem. Yeah. You know, if because it, it could be, if you had a smaller stadium where the services were like a little bit more of a bespoke thing, um, that would also be better for the people who work at baseball stadiums. You know sure. what I mean? Those would be more meaningful jobs. You could pay those people more money. Yep. Um, like, look at what's happened with movie theaters, right? Yep. Um, yeah, that's a great example. The n- sort of, like, you no longer have to fight for a seat. You come and get the seat that you paid for. It's a very luxurious situation. You can get a beer and a, and a meal. Mm-hmm. Like the, the um, black... Alamo. Alamo. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens? If I go to a movie at the Alamo, I pay $15 for the ticket, and because I'm there, I'm going to get three tacos, Yeah, I'm going to get at least one beer, Yep. and I'm probably going to get a chips and queso. Yep. So by the time I leave, instead of going to the movie theater and spending $15, 
I spent 40 and I can't wait to go back the next time. Yes, yes. I mean, and I think that that is sports, big sports experiences um, are still figuring out the fact that HD TV on a 50-inch TV is better in a lot of ways than being at the game for watching the sport. Yeah. I mean, people talk about this all the time with professional football. Like, why would you ever go to a football game anymore? It's, you're miles away. The television breaks are three quarters of your experience there. People are just standing around for a lot of the time. And then the action is so quick that you don't have any idea what actually happened. Yeah. And then you're basically rewatching it on the big screen anyway. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? What's the advantage to that in any way, shape, or form? So you do have to sort of reimagine what it means to be, why would you be there? Like live music. Well, now we're now we're really getting off the rails here, but <laughs> I think I think the sort of the smaller, more intimate setting venues are doing a lot better right now mm-hmm. um, in the music scene as well because you sort of if you're going to be there, you want to be there in a way that allows the energy of the actual band to be something that you couldn't get in another way. Yes. So like bands that um, might make a great album don't necessarily tour well because they don't have that energy, that vibe, that whatever. Like, live music is becoming more and more a thing, I think, where it is a, it is unique because of its, like, live experience that you share with the people there and the people who are directly around you. Yeah. And that's not really why we go to baseball games right now, but it could be. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think baseball is the best suited to an idea like this yeah. of most of the major sports because the only play in baseball that's really fun when you're sitting in the third deck is a home run. A mammoth home run. <laughs> right. But most of baseball is not mammoth home runs. Most of right. baseball is, you know, like intimate. A pitcher a pitcher figuring out the exact right pitch to throw in a given moment and placing it perfectly. Right. <laughs> Which you can't tell. Yeah. Somebody in the infield, like, positioning themselves perfectly and then being in the exact right place when a line drive is hit that stops a rally. Um, And when you're close to the field, that's the stuff you can really, really pick up on. Yeah. Baseball is an intimate, slow-moving, highly specific game. Which is why spring training is so good. Which is why spring training is so good and why it would be so much more fun to be there, to be even closer to that action if you're somebody who really cares about the sport. Yeah. So, this is a free podcast. That's free advice to <laughs> anybody listening in Oakland, anybody listening yeah. in Tampa, yeah. I guess Baltimore too. Yeah, um, no, don't don't tear down Camden just yet. It's a nice it's a nice place to watch a game. I it, yeah, I think you could leave. You know, you could just like take some of the upper. Well, whatever. Yeah, no, no, no I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. Take take a, take a deck off mm-hmm. almost. Yeah, then it's a really. It's a different. It's a different shape. It's a different space. It's a different place to be. Right. And what is the so? What's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is you end up with a stadium where there's too few seats, and you have waiting lists of people who want tickets. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing about again the English Premier League. When I was over in London in September trying to get tickets. You can't get a ticket you as a get walk a up yeah. as a walk up American, mm-hmm. uh, especially for like a big match. And you know, in some ways, that was a little frustrating. Uh, I couldn't just throw money at the problem, but I think that the combination of um, you know resale markets 
and the sort of desirability of being on a like getting a thing that feels like it's cool because you got it and you're it's it's a it's a it's an honor and pleasure to be able to be here versus like i just walked up this ticket was available for free i'll wander on in yeah and one of my favorite things about the idea of live entertainment is that that i think is very affirming about the human spirit just to maybe end this segment on a positive note is you can't trick people into Mm. showing up for something yeah people will come if the thing is good and the experience is special and if it's not they won't show up yeah so well we're punting on the team being good (laughs) (laughs) so you really have to double down on the experience but to, to go back to the alamo example the worst thing that happened... So I went to the Alamo... <laughs> and um, Mike XXL. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that movie. But uh, La La Land. Could not stand that movie. Yeah. Wasn't a bad night out. <laughs> I have a pretty good Manhattan. Uh, I had some... Uh, I had some, Well, I only ever ordered tacos. Tacos are really good there. I had some tacos. And then for dessert, I had some chocolate chip cookies that had been heated up. Yeah. A little vanilla, vanilla syrup. Uh, not syrup. Icing on the side. It was a lovely evening out with Jennifer. What what's not to like? What's not to like? Even if the even if the uh, team loses hundred games, right? <laughs> Which is guaranteed. It's gonna happen. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Okay, for our for our last segment, Smith, let's have a frank conversation about the recent election to the Hall of Fame of former Oriole Mike Messina. How do you feel about this? Um. I'm very glad that he is going into the hall without a Yankee hat. <laughs> That's a good place to start. I share that gladness. Yes, that is a that is a redemptive moment as far as I'm concerned. I think the question is sort of like what does the Hall of Fame, what's the Hall of Fame good for? Um, I think Moose was never the best pitcher in baseball. Um, he had some moments where he led staffs for sure. And not a lot moments, long stretches where he was staff ace for sure. Um, and probably spent most of his peak as like also receiving votes in Cy Young discussions. Um, to me, the point of the Hall of Fame is to capture like... I would rather put people in there who had um, two great years and didn't sustain it because I think that they were more the, like, the, the, the purpose of the Hall of Fame is to capture sort of in 1968 who was that, who was the player on everybody's lips, who was the, like, guy who everyone, who you couldn't miss, who was the Chris Davis of 2013. Um and to me, that's more interesting than they just did it pretty well, very well longitudinally. Um, but, I mean, the numbers are there. <laughs> the counting numbers are there. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I agree with you. I feel like, <clears throat> uh, for me, the Hall of Fame, it should be impossible to get in. Yeah. And that means that the only people who should get in are the people who did the impossible 
for a sustained period of time. Mm. The people who were so good that it was unbelievable, and what's even more unbelievable is that they were consistently performing at that level, which is why, to me, Roy Halladay, even though his counting numbers are not as high, is a no-brainer because— Also did not go into the Hall of Fame with the plaque. Really? Yeah. Really? Also not not choosing to ally himself with the Phillies over the Jays. Well— I mean, I guess... I mean, he doesn't choose that. His family chose that. Right, yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, but, like, there was an eight-year period where there, he was, no, without question, the best pitcher in baseball. He was yeah. the standard by which we judged yeah. pitchers. Yeah. Game over. Yeah. You could never say that about Mike Messina. Um, and I, I would say the same is true about Edgar Martinez. Like, mm. there was a 11- or 12-year period where he was one of the top three to five hitters in the entire sport. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, parenthetically, to the people who don't think he should be going in because he was only ever a DH, you could say the same thing about closers. And I, I and think Rivera was the first all. Yeah, on un, un, undoubtable. Yeah. yeah, and I think Mariano Rivera is a no doubt Hall of Famer. I yeah. have no he, beef he with his every, induction. He hits, hits, he hits every of our previous like um, best in the game for a long time. Yeah. Sustained excellence. Right. Monitors. Did it all with one pitch. It's actually insane. Yeah. Um, but if we're going to put closers in, we've got to put DHs so in. Much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So anyway, that's a parenthetical. My thing with Mike Messina is he was actually my hero when I was a kid. Yeah. More than Cal Ripken. Huh. I idolized Mike Messina. I loved his approach to pitching. Huh. I was a pitcher at that time um, and like wished that I could approach the game the way he did. That's not to say that there aren't there weren't aspects of his career that are really incredible. To me, his uh, the one that sticks out the most is his career walk rate per nine innings is two. Wow! He pitched for eighteen years. I don't think he ever had a season. I have not fact checked this claim. I don't think he ever had a season where his walks per nine were over three. Wow! Uh, and in his career, it's exactly two point That is astonishing like there are a lot of there are a lot of things that will never happen again uh i don't think a pitcher is ever going to win 300 games again i don't know if a pitcher is ever going to win 250 games again other than cc sabathia who's almost to might uh, he's like 260 or something i'm not sure um but the point is that to me is the counting number about mike messina that is really incredible the thing about the 270 wins is I find so many of those wins... I mean, we are on record on this podcast as questioning the win stat. Uh, That's a place where we've thrown our lot in with the nerds. I don't think the fact that Mike Messina won 270 games is that impressive because he won so many of those games as a part of a Yankee staff when that team was so much better than everybody else that all you had to do was make it through six innings and you were probably going to get a win even if you hadn't pitched that well. Although, conversely... You could argue that he spent, of his 18 seasons, he spent 10 of them with the Orioles. Is that right? Nine of them? I think it's I think it's nine and nine. It's nine either and nine, nine and nine or eight and ten. I think it's eight and ten. I think he spent 10 years with the Orioles, yeah. but one of the, or two of them, he was not an everyday mm-hmm. starter. But, I mean, the inverse was true when he was pitching for the Orioles, right? I mean, yeah, a that's lot true. of, he had a lot of like seven, 
innings, one run, take the hard loss. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Kind of starts with them. So at, at least you can say that it probably averaged out. Yeah. Uh, he probably got a few soft wins and took a few uncomfortably hard losses. Yeah, yeah. I just think he, as much as I loved Mike Messina, as much as I thought his he was a brilliant tactician yeah as much as i admired his consistency his ease under pressure all of those things he was never the guy that roy halliday was yeah and well, but so, so i mean and i think that that is an interesting question about the value of the hall of fame i mean the way that the hall is currently deployed mike messina is a clear yeah hall of fame pitcher yeah. I mean, like, he, he, he clearly demonstrates all the things that we think we currently want from our Hall of Fame. But basically, in my mind, what the Hall of Fame is currently doing is saying, here are the top 4% of baseball players, mm-hmm. which is not very interesting to me. <laughs> right. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't really care about the top 4% of baseball players. I, I want to know who were the people. Like, you know, I, I think that if the idea that someone has to get in every year almost is stupid to me <laughs> like I, I, right. I, I sort of feel like there should be years but no one gets in because yeah that's a that's an excellent point you can't they have decided because they are to go back to a theme that we hit a lot on this show they are a for-profit business so <laughs> pig dogs. <laughs> like they need people to make plans to come to the museum every summer yeah um and if you have some years where it's like, well, I guess nobody lived up to our lofty standards. And I guess it's actually it, it's actually not the Hall of Fame standards, right? It's a right. ragtag bunch of baseball journalists, some of whom uh, are trying to make bizarre, arcane political points with their votes. Right. Um, and some of whom also want to, like we all do, um, be there for the greatest era. So they will vote right. for their people mm-hmm. because they would like their people to represent. So they, they they want to have thought that they covered the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I think we're entering a very, very interesting time with the Hall of Fame because I guess Jeter is eligible next year. And obviously Derek Jeter is a Hall of Famer and we'll yes. get in. Uh, but he's not as good as you guys wish he was. Like, can we all just calm down? Um but when it comes to a lot of the counting numbers that we have historically associated with Hall of Famedom, it's going to start to get a little bit weird over the next few years. There's going to be less people who are no-brainers of the kind we were accustomed to for so long. So think about that. <laughs> is that is that good or bad? I mean, I think... I, I think you know, like do, somebody who is playing right now who by wins above replacement has actually a weirdly compelling Hall of Fame case is Ben Zobrist. Mm. Like Ben Zobrist, I mean, I, I think he probably won't hit the threshold. I think the general threshold for wins above replacement tends to be around 50 at the low end. Um, with With some, you know, like Trevor Hoffman got in because he had so many saves, but his war wasn't very high. But um, like Ben Zobrist is, I think at, you know, he's probably going to play for three or four more years. He's at 47 or 48 wins above replacement cumulatively for his career. You know, at what point do we start having a conversation about people like that? Because there's going to be more Ben Zobrists over the next 10 years than there are yeah. Edgar Martinez's 
and Mariano Rivera's and even Mike Mucina's. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. I mean, we're obviously watching, you know, greatness play out in the form of Mike Trout. Yeah. And there will there will continue to be people like that. Um, You're probably watching greatness play out in the form of Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. Yeah. As painful as that is to say. But I think there will be fewer and fewer of those kinds of no-brainers. Right. Of of the type we have traditionally envisioned uh, as the game continues to mature. Um, so, Sam. Yes. What would you call a lanky, moderately successful left fielder who bats left-handed, throws right-handed, and is currently playing for Juegos de Ocosia in the Mexican League. Would that be one Henry Yerudia? Indeed. Talk about chaos theory. <laughs> Remember when we thought that was going to be a thing? Uh, Hyunsu Kim? Remember Hyunsu Kim? Hyunsu Kim is a, he, he's a, he is a, he, he's a statistical darling. Not my darling. No? <laughs> I miss Hyunsu Kim. Travis Snyder? I mean, really? Really? I mean, Kim had a better on-base percentage than anybody else on the, in the, that Orioles two-thirds of a season. The only one to sniff 400. Yep. In, ugh, um, Since Nick Marquez left town. <laughs> Just re-signed with the Braves. Well, friends, it's been wonderful to be back in your headphones. Can we sit here and guarantee you it'll happen again soon? No. We can't. <laughs> that would be foolish. But we hope that, um, you know, the idea of a sporadically produced and released episode of Baltimoreans is not a depressing idea. <laughs> and if it is, uh, you're probably living a pretty privileged life. <laughs> Also, why on earth are you still subscribed to this feed if this is a depressing notion to you? <laughs> yeah, that's um. What did we? What, what have we done and demonstrated in the last four years to make you expect anything better from us? Yeah, hate listening to podcasts. Though I have to say, is a real thing. Yeah, and it's an. It, I do it myself. Sure, um, and it does satisfy something. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we might be talking to you again soon. Probably not. (laughs) Goodbye.